Asana ist eine Work-Management-Plattform, die Unternehmen dabei unterstützt, mit weniger Aufwand mehr zu erreichen. Teams können miteinander vernetzt bleiben, Updates verfolgen und Zeitpläne visualisieren. Asana, a smarter way to work. Kostenlos unter asana.com testen. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists, the program that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Chris Smith. Coming up, as the UK rejoins the EU Horizon Research Programme, we hear from the Secretary of State for Science, Innovation and Technology on what she sees as the benefits from this new deal. Also, scientists discover a way to get lithium batteries to charge up faster and perform better in the cold. And how and why did we humans lose our tails back in history? From Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education, this is The Naked Scientists. Up first this week, the UK severed ties with Europe's £80 billion Horizon Research and Innovation Project following the country's exit from the EU with Brexit. The move provoked great consternation amongst large parts of the country's scientific community at the time and it has since taken several years of painstaking negotiations for the UK to finally regain associate membership. So how will this work and what are the benefits to being back in this scientific club? Speaking to me about this, as well as the UK's commitment to net zero and our AI interests, is Michelle Donnellan, who's the UK's Secretary of State for Science, Innovation and Technology. Horizon isn't a EU-exclusive scheme. What Horizon is, is it's the world's largest research collaboration programme. So for the UK to reassociate is a big deal, not just for the scientific community and for businesses who can access it, but of course for the British public who ultimately will benefit from any developments in uh, research that could include drug discovery or medical advances or climate change. So this is a really good news. And what makes this different is the fact that this is a better deal than what we had uh, on the table when we first left the European Union. We have the ability to be able to obtain more money than we're putting in by the nature of it. And we also have a safety mechanism. So if the reverse happens, we're protected and we can get some money back. So this is good news for the taxpayer as well. And on average, each business in the UK will benefit £450,000. So they bid in for a pot of money to help them in terms of a research and development project. And then they are accessing this research collaboration fund. But how much is this costing us to be in the club in Europe because when we left the mm-hmm. Horizon program the UK government because the UK is a big contributor to science anyway yeah. said well well actually we'll just step in and fill the void of what the grants coming back from the Horizon program would have been so it was sort of cost neutral at the time to UK science apparently but what's it costing now and why are the EU even interested in signing up to this if we get more back yeah. than we were putting in before So basically, to bridge the gap, we did something called the Horizon Guarantee. So we didn't leave scientists and innovators and businesses without any potential funding during that period of time. But this will be costing us roughly 
two, two billion a year, but it depends on how much we're actually getting back. And that's why we want to maximize this opportunity. So when I talk to scientists and businesses and innovators, and when I began in this role, their key message to me was we have to associate with Horizon because of the value that that will add. And when we were previously members, over half of the projects that we were involved with, we led on. So we've got a legacy of being very successful in this scheme. We want to maximize this opportunity to get the most value for money out of it for the taxpayer. So we've not just been hoping that businesses and scientists fit into it. We've actually been marketing our REA association, especially to those that uh, are new to, uh, to academia, your younger scientists and, and researchers, and to businesses that haven't participated before. We've also been giving funds to help with the process of, of bidding in. And in addition, we've got a roadshow that's already beginning. Uh, first one is partnering with the University of Birmingham to raise real awareness about our association and to provide some of the answers to how does this actually work? How do I how do I access this fund if I, if I want to, to participate? And we've also worked with Innovate UK, which is an arm of UKRI, which is basically the big body that gives out research funding in the UK. And they have redesigned the website and the processes to make this as simple, as quick and as easy as possible for those who want to participate in the scheme. Allied to that is something which is really important at the moment worldwide, which is this pursuit of net zero and better ways of generating the energy we need in future. Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong, though, we're out of the European fusion endeavours, though, aren't we? We've been a big contributor to ITER, which is the experimental nuclear reactor at Cadarache in France, a, a big fusion yes. project. We're not part of that now through this deal. So, uh, so there were there were three schemes under uh, basically one umbrella often in terms of how they were referred to. And they are Horizon, which we've been talking about here today, Copernicus, which we've also reassociated with, and Euratom. Now, we didn't decide to reassociate with Euratom because we've been listening to the experts, those on the ground that actually benefit from these schemes. We spent a great deal of time talking to that sector who made it very, very clear that given the, the gap in time of association, that it would be far better for the British fusion sector to get that same quantum in money, but get it directly to them rather than um, go around uh, it, the, the, the scheme. So you're going to do that? You're, that, you're, you're actually no, pursuing UK fusion? We're giving the same quantum of money, but directly to the UK sector. And that was a direct ask of the fusion sector in this country. Got to be careful with the word quantum, though, because it means something very, very small. At the same, the same volume of money that we had <laughs> already been giving. I think we, I mean, we, we can play around with different words, but um, I can assure you they all mean the same thing when they're coming out of my mouth, which is that uh, we have been very clear that the money that we would have put in to uh, Euratom is the same money that the sector will be getting. But rather than uh, going via a middleman, if you like, they're getting it direct, which was their ask. And it was the ask of, of their association body. And we listened to that. Where does the government stand on net zero climate change now? Well, we haven't deviated in our position of saying how important it is that we tackle climate change and that we stick to our, our 2050 target. We were the first country in the world to legislate, uh, to put that on the, the statute books. What we did change last year was uh, some of the ways in which we, we get there. 
uh, by delaying some of the, the targets, making them more doable. There's no point setting targets for targets sake if we all know that they're not achievable or that they'll bankrupt the nation or that they're impossible for, for normal families, including families in my constituency. We have to be realistic about these things. And I think that the thing that the prime minister said that really resonated with me was that what we were in danger of doing if we stuck blindly to those targets was alienating people away from something that is incredibly important. And I believe passionately that we all have a role in tackling climate change, not just uh, governments, not just local councils, not just local communities, but on an individual basis. And to be able to achieve that, everybody's got to buy in to uh, that, that mission. Um, and we actively need to be turning people um, towards that, not against it. And therefore, it has to be realistic. It has to be affordable. Uh, but we certainly haven't deviated in any way from the end goal. Not at all. Are you planning, though, to try and tighten up and close the gap on how we actually account for emissions? Because, for instance, if we shut down an industry in this country and buy what we would have made here from overseas, we've basically exported the carbon emissions to someone else's country and someone else's problem. It's a global problem, ultimately, but we've made it appear on their books as a carbon output. Are we actually properly accounting for these sorts of things? Another example, people are saying, let's build a solar farm, for example. But when you look at the calculations for all the farmland being replaced by solar panels, they're not taking into account the fact that the food that would have been grown there is now accruing a big carbon footprint coming from grain-producing nations overseas. But, but that's not strictly true because uh, solar is uh, predominantly placed on low agricultural grade land that wouldn't therefore um, have the same propensity to, uh, to, to, to grow food. But, but, the, but the, the broader point is that there is uh, merit to your the sentiment of your argument when the fact that we are responsible for a tiny, tiny proportion um, of the world's uh, carbon emissions. Therefore, it is a, a global challenge. And that is very much why we have been trying to um, encourage, enable and support the rest of the world in this uh, in this mission to be able to tackle climate change. That's why we have been so forthright in our uh, work and support of the COP process as well. I wanted to ask you about artificial intelligence as well, because that's an area where the UK traditionally can make a, a big difference. And I know that the Prime Minister made some quite enthusiastic points about that. What can you tell us about what uh, scientifically you have in mind in that direction? Yeah, absolutely. So artificial intelligence is the fastest emerging technology that I believe we've ever seen. And um, with that comes humongous opportunities. Some of those opportunities we're already seeing in the lights of our NHS, with the detection of breast cancer quicker, with uh, the, the use in, it, in nearly 90% of all stroke units, for example. Um, it is assisting many professions and the future is really limitless in relation to artificial intelligence. But with that, the other side of the coin are the, the very real and um, very potential risks. Uh, they are basically two sides of the same coin. And that is very much why we have tried to address and grip those risks so that we can seize those huge opportunities in our public services and our businesses. And we can make sure that the British public draw down on the benefits of artificial intelligence. And it was this government and my department which led the way with the first ever 
AI Safety Summit back in November in Bletchley Park, where we convened the world, not just governments, but also the, the companies producing artificial intelligence, those at the cutting edge, we call the frontier of artificial intelligence, and also members of civil society, academics and experts who have studied this field for a great deal of time. We produced a landmark declaration a, a agreement, a, the Bletchley Declaration. We also got a landmark agreement to ensure that we can test the models pre-deployment, which is vitally important because the next set of models are about to come out. And with every generation of new models, the capability increases. And we have set up the world's first ever institute to do just that, to test these models, both pre and post deployment. A number of countries around the world have, have talked about this and are in the process of doing this, like America and Japan and Singapore uh, and France, who I have been um, meeting with today. But the stage that they're at with their institute is earlier than ours. We have our institute fully set up and already testing these models. That is enabling us to really prioritise the safety of the British public. It's looking at things like societal harms, looking at things like uh, loss of control and also misuse. But the only reason we're doing all of that is so that we can seize these opportunities in the likes of our NHS, in our, in our transport networks, our businesses can deploy uh, and uh, AI and be more efficient and effective so we can add to our economic growth, so we can grow our jobs. And the other thing that we're trying to do is really foster a, uh, an innovative environment so that AI companies want to locate here, they want to grow here, they want to create more jobs on British soil. And that's been working. We have already Google DeepMind, a homegrown success story in the UK, but OpenAI and Anthropic, two of the biggest AI companies, have chosen the UK to locate their international headquarters. And we have a full spectrum of AI corporations right through the ecosystem at all stages within the AI industry. Michelle Donlan there, the UK Secretary of State for Science, Innovation and Technology. Humans, chimpanzees, gorillas and orangutans don't have tails. And this sets us apart from other primates. We also know that because of our shared evolutionary history, our ancestors almost certainly did have tails. So why did we lose them alongside those other animals and how? Itai Yanai is a geneticist and a systems biologist at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. And the way, he tells me, this study began was literally as a pain in the arse for one of his colleagues. The story starts with a student in my lab. His name is Bo Xia. Bo got injured while sitting in a car so he, he moved over and he sat, unfortunately, on a belt buckle and he injured his tailbone. It all sort of culminated in a very simple question. How did we lose our tail? The chimpanzee, they don't have a tail. The gorilla doesn't have a tail. But if you go to more distantly related, like the macaque monkey, the macaque monkey, of course, still has a tail. Is one way to try and find out why we even had a tail historically mm. and how these other other animals have a tail is it you go and look at them and ask well what genes have they got that might make them have a tail because then you can you can ask well are they different in us right so what bo did is he studied the genome using a genome browser that allows him to see very conveniently what does our genome look like and particularly what does it look like when you compare it 
to the genomes of other animals like the macaque, donkey, like, like the gorilla, and the chimpanzee. And what he saw is that there is a particular element that's in a region that doesn't look like it would be important. It doesn't uh, look like it would be very disruptive. However, it had three interesting things about it. One, it was in this gene that was known for a very long time that uh, it's responsible for the tail. Two, it's a, an element that we could see is at the right time. Why is it at the right time? Because all the animals that have this change don't have a tail, and all the animals that do still have a tail lack this element. So it was the right pattern. And three, knowing molecular biology, Bo could see that that actually would be highly disruptive. So now Bo had a hypothesis. This change, that is how we lost our tail. So in summary then, you home in on this region of the DNA, which we know is linked to animals having tails or or tail function. And that in animals that appear not to have a tail, there is a region of that gene which has a change in it. And it's in all the animals that don't have a tail. And it appears in such a way that it would disrupt or affect how that gene would work, which that does look like a smoking gun genetically then. Exactly. So now the question is, what do you do with this? Bo and I sat down together and we designed this experiment where we would generate mice that have exactly the same kind of mutation that we saw that we have. And the prediction would be that if you make mice like that, they would also lose their own tails. And do they? If you, if you introduce this same change into a mouse, do you end up with mice with truncated or absent tails? You know, they do. And I still get goosebumps every time I think about it. They do. They're born without a tail. And although it took years of work, four years of of generating mice and studying them, what we saw was that there's a correspondence between how much disruption we put in and the length of the tail. Now, most things that get fixed in evolution confer some kind of advantage. So on the one hand, we lose a tail and gain tailless So what would have been the advantage that would have meant this was so strongly selected for in the group of animals that were our ancestors back in history? It was 25 million years ago, so we'll never know for sure. The way we speculated is that actually it could very well be that this mutation was the fundamental mutation that led to us sitting down here and talking on the Naked Scientist podcast that facilitated us to come down from the trees and have a life on the ground where we now stand on our two feet. One issue, though, is that that part of the body, how we form the backbone and the spinal cord that overlays it, there is a small group of unfortunate people in the population who suffer neural tube defects, the condition spina bifida, where the tube that forms the spinal column doesn't close up properly at one end, the tail end. Now, does this link up with, or is that associated with this particular gene? And is there therefore a risk if you disrupt it that you're going to get more of that happening? Yeah, you know, this was a completely unexpected aspect of of this project, that when we made the mice with those mutations, some of them were born 
with a condition that looked remarkably similar to the human condition that you mentioned with neural tube defects. And I think now it could lead to a series of, of new studies that promise to make some kind of advancements on how we treat this disease. And yet that's the magic of, of science, that if you let people follow their curiosity, it will lead to interesting places that are just unpredictable. Absolutely fascinating. It's Ayanai there from the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Hi there, I'm Will Tingle, host of monthly spin-off show Naked Genetics, as I look to find out just what's going on inside your genes. Join me on a genetic journey as we seek to cover the latest in genetics research and see just what the front line of genetic mapping and sequencing can reveal about our world. What was the Roman Empire's genetic diversity like? Can you do genetic sequencing at the South Pole? We've got you covered. From the weird... They're called ice fish because when you cut them, their blood runs clear. ...to the even weirder. What he does is he eats his penis. So, if that seems like your bag, subscribe to Naked Genetics wherever you get your podcasts or from our website at nakedscientists.com slash genetics. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. On the way, what does live music do to our brains? And we get ahead of the painful subject of head transplants. Before that, though, rechargeable lithium-ion batteries have unarguably revolutionised the modern electrical era, unlocking the door to powerful devices that we rely on every single day, like phones and electric cars. But where they fall down is in the time that it takes to charge them up and how well they tend to perform across a range of temperatures, and especially in the cold. But now scientists in China have come up with a new recipe for the electrolyte that enables the lithium ions that store the energy in the batteries to move around. This, they say, can hugely increase the rate at which the battery is able to charge and discharge, and it does it even in the very cold. Rodri Jervis works on ways to build better batteries at UCL, and he took me through what the new work published this week in the journal Nature shows, beginning with a quick roundup on what's under the hood of your average lithium-ion battery. All batteries, all electrochemical devices have to have three main things. Those are electrodes, whereby the electron transfer happens, the electricity is transported, and they will have a positive and negative electrode. They will have an electrolyte, which is some sort of salt dissolved in some sort of liquid, which we call the solvent, and they will have a separator to keep those two electrodes apart and to allow the electrolyte to transfer between them. So if you opened up, and and we do this in the lab in in a very safe way, obviously, but if you were to open up a lithium-ion battery, you would see a couple of very thin foils, copper and aluminium foils, onto which these electrodes are actually printed. So the electrodes in lithium-ion batteries are composed of particles of what we call active material. This is the material that can charge and discharge, uh, and there'd be a positive and negative electrode uh, of these sort of coated foils. They look just like black inks, basically, like dried black inks. And then 
uh, in between those electrodes, you would have this liquid solution of uh, salt dissolved in, in the solvent. Uh, and that's the key thing that they've changed in this paper to allow for the charging of the battery to be much faster. There are some constraints with the present generation of lithium batteries. I mean, they're brilliant mm-hmm. and they've transformed industry as well as mm-hmm. life in general, haven't they? But those constraints yeah, are yeah. they don't work very well in the cold, as my electric car keeps telling me. And yeah. they tend to, as my mobile phone is increasingly telling me, degrade with time. They don't hold as much charge. They don't work as well. Why... Mm-hmm. Does that happen? Before we get into what the new study shows, why do I see those changes in battery performance? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. It's one that we're trying to solve all the time. Just to sort of take it back to the usefulness of lithium-ion batteries, you're absolutely right. They have been transformative over the past 30 or 40 years since they've been around. And uh, one of the key innovations and in the commercialization of these batteries by Sony was to use graphite as the negative electrode instead of lithium metal, which is what people used previously. This lithium metal wouldn't charge and discharge, wouldn't cycle very repeatably, uh, and also cause some safety issues as well. So the use of graphite was really key in making reliable, safe batteries. However, that is what actually limits the uh, rate at which the batteries can charge. When the when the graphite um, accepts lithium charged particles during that charging process, um, it can actually degrade a little bit of the uh, electrolyte, that, that liquid that sits within the battery. Um, and it can end up causing this very thin coating on the on the surface of the graphite. We call this an SEI. It doesn't really matter what, what that means, but it's basically a very thin coating. This actually helps to protect the graphite, causing any further breakdown of that electrolyte. So this SEI is a really key thing to the stable operation of these lithium-ion batteries. However, that last journey for the lithium charged particle has to go through that thin SEI layer. And that sort of dictates how quickly those lithium particles can move through the battery, which, of course, then dictates how quickly you can charge your car. So at the moment, um, you'd be limited to maybe half an hour, an hour probably of charging. Over time, one of the degradation modes is for that SEI layer to thicken and therefore increase the resistance that the lithium particles feel when they travel through that. The materials can crack, we can have gas evolution, there's all sorts of ways in which uh, lithium-ion batteries slowly degrade. They are pretty remarkable in how long they last currently, but what one of the key things we're trying to unlock is this fast charging ability. If you could charge your car in 10 minutes, that very much changes how you approach a long journey, how you approach range anxiety, um, and also probably the size of the battery pack that you want in your car. So currently people have very large battery packs so that they don't need to charge as much uh, because it takes at least half an hour to charge. So if you cut that down to five or 10 minutes, perhaps it's less of an issue. Um, Which of the problems have they addressed in this paper or both? They've addressed a couple of different problems here. So the fundamental problem of the rate at which these charged lithium particles move through the electrolyte, they have improved. So when these lithium ions, these lithium particles are dissolved in the electrolyte, they're surrounded by the other constituents of that electrolyte. And these serve to sort of slow down the movement of this lithium particle through the electrolyte. You can kind of think of it as someone trying to get through a crowded room in a party. If that person's very popular and everyone wants to stop and talk to them for a few minutes, that's going to take a long time for them to get from one side of the room to the other. But there are other mechanisms by which this lithium can travel through the electrolyte. And one is by sort of hopping across a linked region of lots and lots of lithium. So if you have a high concentration of these things, you can almost, it's almost like passing a note then amongst other people. And that's sort of what they've done here. They've created a network via which these lithium particles can travel very quickly. But they've also 
made a new type of solvent that allows for a formation of this SEI layer that I mentioned, this protective layer that allows for very rapid transport of lithium through that last little bit of its journey. So through the work in this paper, they've managed to even at very low temperatures of sort of minus 70 degrees, about as low as you'd ever want to <laughs> want to drive around in, really. Um, they've managed to allow for uh, charging rates that would be the equivalent of charging your car at 10 minutes or less, which is really quite remarkable. Is it practical, though? Because there are things we can do which would work wonderfully, but they would be completely uneconomically viable or toxic as you like. Are these materials that they're talking about invoking to do this environmentally friendly and sustainable and moreover cheap? That is a key issue. So currently lithium-ion batteries employ what we would call organic solvents instead of, for example, water, which would be very sustainable. And a lot of these things are, are not sustainable and they are actually quite flammable. This solvent is different to the organic solvents that are used currently, but it is still uh, an organic material. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure of how sustainable this would be compared to the current materials. But one thing is that it would allow a much better performance and potentially then with fast charging, smaller battery packs. And one of the best things you can do for sustainability with batteries is use fewer batteries. In that respect, it should be very positive. Roger Jervis there from UCL. Now, what exactly does live music do to our brains? It turns out that there's a sort of neurological resonance that goes on between performers and listeners, whereby the performers alter their playing to drive the emotional responses of an audience. This partly explains why watching your favourite band play live is so much better than listening to a studio recording. The University of Zurich's Sascha Fruholtz is a professor in cognitive neuroscience, and he's been piping real-time performances to listeners inside brain scanners and then feeding the scan results back to the players with the instruction to play in such a way as to maximise the emotional response of their audience. There was not so much research on live music. We want to see how much more intense is live music compared to recorded music. And the other dimension was the brain. And we do a lot of research on specific part of the brain that we call the affective brain or the limbic system. And one part of the limbic system is the amygdala which is really central to any kind of emotional processing. So we just wanted to see how is the amygdala responding to live music. I suspect that one of the reasons why there's a paucity of information about live music and the brain response is that you can't take a brain scanner to a rock concert, can you? <laughs> so how did you get around that one? Well, this is probably, as you said, this is a limitation. So if you want to quantify brain activity, we need these big machines. So what we had in the experiments, we had people in the brain scanner. So we quantified brain activity in real time, especially again in the limbic system. In the different room, we had the musicians, piano players, seeing the brain activity of the person inside the scanner. So they really could follow brain activity. And, and we asked them, if you see that the activity in the limbic system is going down, try to change something in the performance. Neat. So basically, it's like a biofeedback thing where mm. you turn the brain images that are coming off of 
the person's responses to the music they're presumably hearing while they're in the brain scanner mm. coming from these live musicians. You present that back to the live musicians and mm. they're playing to try to make the brain activity change in a way that does something in sync with their music. So what sorts of things did the musicians do to respond mm. and what sorts of responses did the person's brain produce when they heard the change in the music? They change what we call the timbre of the music, so the sound quality. They change the tempo, for example. They change the complexity of the piece. And all of this, in the end, has been successful. So when these musicians introduce changes in the way how they perform the piece, we saw an increase in the activity of people listening. When you go to a live event, is this what's going on? You would say that the musicians on the stage are in some way subtly changing the way they play which is synchronized with the responses they're getting off the crowd. So the two kind of gel. Exactly like this. And this can only happen during live music. So you have the musicians on one side and they try to produce a performance in order to increase the emotional experience of the audience. While they perform, they see the responses of the audience. And then if, they, for example, see that the audience is not happy, they try to introduce some changes. What happens if you play music to somebody that they absolutely loathe? I mean, there are certain musicians, certain genres of music, which I can't stand. Others I absolutely <laughs> love. Did you try any of that to see whether music that one person loves activates mm. a totally different set of circuits when they're loving it compared to someone who's loathing it? Mm. That's, that's actually an interesting question, actually. And we know the amygdala being part of the limbic system or the emotional brain responds to both something you like but also if you listen to something that you completely hate in terms of music in our study on music and the emotional reaction listeners we had positive music so music that makes you happy but we also had music that we called unpleasant so it's um, negative music more inducing emotions like let's say sadness or nostalgia for example it portrays a negative emotion music but somehow still people like to listen to this minor mode music is it like eating your greens? You you know it doesn't <laughs> taste great, but it, it's good for you. And so you need that kind of contrast in the music because it kind of stretches you emotionally. <laughs> Do you think that's what's going on? Yes. I mean, music is also like, it has a dimension that we call an aesthetic dimension. So it's not only the music itself, but music also like, it has a theme, it has a specific topic. And sometimes these topics, they can be negative. But still, you would like to listen to this music because... You're interested in this negative theme in the end. Sasha Fruholtz there. Well, it's time now to join Will for our question of the week, which is sponsored by Clam XAV, the anti-malware software that protects your Mac without compromising its performance. It's been tried and tested by us, and Clam XAV provides top quality malware and virus protection for your Mac that definitely won't slow the computer down. And even better, listeners to The Naked Scientist can get 20% off in their first year with the code naked 20 to do that you go to clamxav slash naked and use the discount code naked 20 to protect your mac today now over to will thanks chris this week we're taking on this head scratcher from listener david i suffer from post-viral chronic pain and fatigue and often joke that i need a body transplant is it possible to keep a head alive and fully functioning i'd love to know the answer but not really keen on being the first one to go a transplant Thank you to David. I'm not sure I'd want to be the first one to give it a go either. But is it feasible? Could we transfer our head to a different body? Adam Taylor, Professor of Anatomy at Lancaster University, is on hand to help us out. That's, uh, that's an, an amazing question and, and one that we're really 
working towards from a scientific perspective, I think one of the biggest challenges with any transplantation is the issue of immune rejection. So where the person who's receiving the organ recognizes that actually this tissue that's being transplanted into the body doesn't belong to them. Actually, we can now manage that very well with medicine. So we can give anti-rejection drugs, which dampen down the immune response of the recipient so that it enables that organ that they've received to function without the body attacking it. Thanks to immunosuppressants, transplants of organs have been going on successfully for decades. Kidneys, livers, and even hearts and lungs. But when we look at the head as a whole, that's a much more difficult conundrum to solve. We're transplanting a number of organs and a number of structures that actually have to be connected up to the donor recipient. There's a very methodical approach to doing this. We have to maintain the donor tissue, whether that's a whole head or 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 an organ, such as the kidneys. We have to maintain it alive but not alive enough to burn through all of its energy stores to the point where it may actually cease to function normally. And when it comes to the head, the organ consuming most of our body's energy is the brain, which hoovers up 20% of all the blood coming out of our heart with every single beat. And so we would have to almost cool the brain down and the head itself puts it into a temporary hibernation whilst the surgeons go about attaching things like the major arteries that go from the heart and through the neck into the head, attaching the major muscles so that when that transplant occurs, the individual is able to control the uh, control the muscles that move the head, etc. Everything we've discussed so far, while difficult, is nonetheless doable. But what we haven't yet touched on is where the prospect of a head transplant becomes a lot less realistic. That comes with the issue of the spinal cord, really. Nerves are not great at regenerating themselves, particularly the central nervous system so in the brain and the spinal cord. We are moving towards that from a, a research perspective and a medical perspective in, it, in being able to treat that and there's some really interesting things that are happening. But the biggest challenge is in our spinal cord, it is segmented, it is broken down into individual sections. They're almost like motorways that take you to a, from a specific place to a specific place that are controlling your movement. So when your brain tells yourself you know, to put your hand up or to, to take a step forward, where we're going to encounter really big issues with, with this proposition is connecting the spinal cord of the body up with the spinal cord of the head in a position where those two corresponding motorways line up properly and give the recipient full control of everything that they've just inherited. And that's that's a big challenge, and, and it's one we certainly don't see being solved anytime soon. So we have the, it's almost, we can almost say we have the technology to make it happen, but the practicalities of it aren't quite there yet. So there you have it, David. Keep your head up, and maybe we'll get there someday. Thank you very much to Adam Taylor from the University of Lancaster. Next time, we'll be answering this question from listener Bob. He asks, do you ever run out of sperm? Sounds urgent. Um, if you do know the answer or have a question of your own, drop us a line. The email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com or join us on the forums at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Do join us on Tuesday, though, when off the back of the cyber attacks on the British Library and, as it turns out, our own University of Cambridge, we're going to be taking a look at the world of cybercrime. Who's behind it and what are the consequences? The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>